0: Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums specially curated to accompany your weekly Come Follow Me studies. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Many who speak at a Brigham Young University devotional make reference to their experiences as students at BYU and the insights they gained by attending devotionals. I can't do that because I never attended BYU. I'm a Utah State University Aggie, and my Aggie blue runs deep. I'm a big Cougar fan, but even after 20 years of season tickets to BYU basketball and football, I still can't bring myself to sing Rise and Shout. <laughs> In that same 20 years, I've also attended devotionals as, facu- as a faculty member and I've heard their testimonies of many of my colleagues and have felt the spirit of many students as they have borne testimony through music. I'm particularly humbled by this opportunity to speak to you today in a place where prophets and apostles have taught and testified. I'm the youngest in a family of four boys, and about 22 years ago, I was encouraged to apply for a faculty opening here at BYU in the Department of Mathematics. At the time, I was a faculty member at Oregon State University. And my three older brothers lived in Iowa, Washington, and California, while my parents lived in Logan, Utah. In addition to it being a great opportunity for me to come to BYU, it also allowed me to be a little closer to my parents because their health was failing. My father did not want my decision about moving to Utah to be based in any way on helping him and my mother. He was very proud of the fact that his sons were contributing to the kingdom outside of Utah. My wife, Shauna, and I felt that the move to BYU was the right decision and arrived here in August of 1996. Six months after our arrival, my father had surgery in Salt Lake City to replace a heart valve. This was the beginning of a 17-day roller coaster ride. Ten years earlier, this valve had been repaired with a pig valve, and at which time he contracted hepatitis C. But because the pig valve was failing, the doctors decided to replace it with a mechanical valve. During the surgery, they realized that the hepatitis C had wreaked havoc on my father's liver, making the heart surgery very traumatic to his body. At this time, my mother's health was not good, so she was only able to visit my dad about every two to three days. Thus, the visiting of my father and communicating with doctors fell to my wife and me. One or the other of us would travel from Mapleton, about 10 miles south of Provo, to the hospital in Salt Lake every day. Many times she would spend the afternoon and I would spend the evening or vice versa at the hospital. This was particularly challenging because we had four children ranging in age from three to nine. I refer to this as a roller coaster because one day a particular doctor would be pessimistic and another doctor would be optimistic about the eventual outcome. These varied opinions and outlooks greatly affected my emotions as I went to visit him. I remember driving up State Street in Salt Lake City toward the hospital and feeling the dread of what I might hear from the doctors on that day and wondered to myself, am I afraid of my dad dying? I also thought to myself, I have a testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ and of his resurrection. Am I afraid of death? Do I really believe I will see my father again? It is this question of do we really believe that will be the focus of my comments today. As I pose this question, I do not do so to introduce doubt because when I was going through these trials associated with my father's time in the hospital, I never really doubted my testimony. Instead, I wondered why I was feeling this wide swing of emotions when I knew I did have a testimony that the atonement of Jesus Christ would allow me to see my father again. In Moroni chapter seven, verse 41, it says, and what is it that ye shall hope for? Behold, I say unto you, I say unto you that ye shall have hope through the atonement of Christ and the power of his resurrection to be raised unto life eternal, and this because of your faith in him according to the promise. I believe this scripture, but this was the first time I had to directly apply it in my life. We don't truly gain a testimony of many principles of the gospel until we exercise faith and apply them in our lives. I already had a a testimony of the blessings of paying tithing, a testimony that J- Joseph Smith saw God in Jesus Christ and a testimony of God's presence in the temple because I had many opportunities to test these principles and had confirming experiences about them. Facing the death of my father, however, was my first opportunity to test my faith and understanding of the resurrection. On what gospel principles is your testimony based? And are there principles or doctrines about which you ask, do I really believe? As I faced this trial, I was able to recall something that my father had told me many times growing up. Hold fast to the things that you know are true, and the answers to the rest will come to you in time. When he was a young man, he struggled to understand why worthy black male members of the church could not hold the priesthood. He went to his bishop with this question and was given these words of advice. Hold fast to the things that you know are true, and the answers to the rest will come to you in time. He heeded this counsel and often shared it with my brothers and me. For our family, June 8th, 1978 was a day of celebration and a confirmation from my father that answers to the rest will come to you in time. Interestingly, I've heard this same idea shared many times in recent general conference talks. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland counseled us in April of 2013 to hold fast to what you already know and stand strong until additional knowledge comes. Later that same year, President Dieter F. Uchdorf admonished, First, doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. During a talk in October of 2014, Elder Neil L. Anderson said, We cannot discard something we know to be true because of something we do not yet understand. And similarly, Elder Kevin W. Pearson encouraged us in April of 2015 that when adversity comes, don't let something you don't fully understand unravel everything you do know. Be patient cling to truth, understanding will come. When I was on this trying journey of driving to the hospital each day and facing the fact that my father might not recover, I held fast to the testimony that I did have in the various gospel principles, but knew that someday I would better understand the resurrection. One thing that I have come to realize is that the main contributing factor to the swing in my emotions at this time was the fear of the temporary loss of association with my father, One of the main things we enjoy about our families is spending time with them. My father never missed attending a game in which I participated as a young man. Whether it was a high school football or basketball or church basketball, he never missed a game. We also attended many Utah State University basketball games together and even had a chance to attend a jazz basketball game in the month before his surgery. I believe that one cause of my fears as I drove to the hospital was not a doubt in my testimony but the sadness I would feel in not being able to spend time with him. After 17 days in the hospital, my father passed away, and I was forced to consider the question, do I really believe in the resurrection and atonement? The fact that I never really doubted my testimony during this trying time is consistent with my patriarchal blessing, which states that I have been blessed with a gift of faith, that gift of a believing heart. This believing heart came in part from my mother, At her funeral, my older brother Mark quoted Alma chapter 56, verse 48, 48, which says, We do not doubt our mother knew it. All three of my brothers and I knew that there was no doubt in my mother's testimony, and we are all the beneficiaries of her gift of faith. Since all of us will be challenged at one time or another about what we really believe, I will now examine a few other places in our lives and in our testimonies where the question, Do we really believe, may arise. My wife, Shauna, has listened to the radio talk show host, Dr. Lara, for many years. Dr. Lara is a marriage and family therapist who fields phone calls to help people deal with problems in their relationships. Perhaps some of you have listened to her show, or maybe your parents have, or maybe some of you have called her for advice with regard to someone you're dating right now. I've listened to this show many times while driving long distances with my wife. But because Dr. Lara is so confrontational with people, with the people who call in, it makes me uncomfortable. This discomfort is a good thing for me, however, because it helps me stay awake while driving long distances. (laughs) One of the common types of phone calls Dr. Lara receives is a husband or wife calling in to describe a behavior or problem regarding their spouse that they would like to change or fix. Dr. Lara often asks if they knew the spouse had the problem while they were dating, and the answer is usually yes. Dr. Lara then says that she can't help because the person knew the spouse's flaw before they got married, and now they have to deal with it. One message I've gleaned from this council in these types of situations is that people can't change. I've always been bothered by this underlying message that people can't change because it seems so inconsistent with my understanding of the atonement. Do we really believe that people can change? I believe they can. Intellectually, I've known this for years, but didn't gain a strong testimony of the principal until I served as a bishop. In this ecclesiastical role, I had the opportunity to counsel with a man who was struggling with pornography and had been for many years. I also counseled with his wife about the emotions she was experiencing at this challenging time. Because he had hidden his addiction from her for so long, she didn't know if he could ever overcome this struggle. She didn't know if she could ever trust him again. As we visited one evening, the following thought came clearly to my mind. If you truly believe in the atonement of Jesus Christ, you have to believe that people can change. If you don't believe a person can change, then you don't believe in the atonement. In that moment, I was taught by the Holy Ghost for the benefit of this sister. Simultaneously, my testimony of the atonement's power to change people also increased. Let's consider another example. In my current study of the Book of Mormon, I've been reading the new student manual for Book of Mormon Institute classes. For 1 Nephi chapter 11, the manual posed the question, what principles of receiving revelation can you identify from Nephi's experience? With this question in mind, I gained some new insights as I read 1 Nephi chapter 11 verses 1 through 5, which states, For it came to pass, after I had desired to know the things that my father had seen, And believing that the Lord was able to make them known unto me. As I sat pondering in my heart, I was caught away in the Spirit of the Lord, yea, into an exceedingly high mountain, which I never had before seen, and upon which I never had before set my foot. And the Spirit said unto me, Behold, what desirest thou? And I said, I desire to behold the things which my father saw. And the Spirit said unto me, Believest thou that thy father saw the tree of which he has spoken? And I said, Yea. Thou knowest that I believe all the words of my father. There were two phrases in these verses that really jumped out to me. They are believing that the Lord was able to make them known unto me in verse one and thou knowest that I believe all the words of my father in verse five. Put simply, the first phrase indicates Nephi believed that if he asked, God would answer. Maybe this seems obvious to many of you, but it jumped out to me in my recent reading because I'm not sure I always believe God will answer when I pray. Rather, I believe he will answer, but I'm not sure I'm always going to understand or recognize that answer. I also find it significant that Nephi says he believes all the words of his father because his father was also a prophet. Nephi's general mindset was that he believed in the words of the prophet, but he wanted to understand those words better. To do this, he knew that he could ask God because he believed God would answer his inquiry. In a world where the beliefs of those in the great and spacious building get farther and farther away from the doctrines of the church, it becomes more and more common for the words of the prophet to be at odds with the beliefs of the world. How do we respond when those conflicts exist? Do we believe as Nephi did in all the words of the prophet? and turn to God in prayer, believing that he will answer our honest inquiries? Or do we doubt and turn to our peers or the internet for reinforcement of the messages of the great and spacious building? It is interesting to contrast Nephi to his brothers, Laman and Lamuel, on this same matter of understanding their father's dream. In 1 Nephi chapter 15, Nephi returns to his father's tent after being taught by an angel and by the spirit to find Laman and Lamuel arguing about the meaning of Lehi's dream. It is at this point that we have the following interchange in verse eight. And I said unto them, have ye inquired of the Lord? And they said unto me, we have not. For the Lord maketh no such thing known unto us. Notice the contrast in attitude between Nephi and his brothers. He believed that God would teach him about Lehi's dream. While Laman and Lemuel said that the Lord wouldn't answer their prayers. Continuing on in verse 11, Nephi counsels, Do ye not remember the things which the Lord has said? If you will not harden your hearts and ask me in faith, believing that ye shall receive with diligence in keeping my commandments, surely these things shall be made known unto you. Nephi reminds his brothers that if they believe, they will receive an answer, and surely these things shall be made known unto you. We see a similar contrasting attitudes between Nephi and his brothers when they returned to Jerusalem to seek the place of brass. In verse 31 of 1 Nephi chapter 3, we see that Laman and Lamuel didn't believe they could get the plates when they said, Laban can slay 50, then why not us? Nephi shows his believing heart in chapter 4 when he said, God is mightier than all the earth, then why not mightier than Laban and his 50? When we pray, do we really believe that we will receive an answer? When we are prompted to do challenging things, do we really believe that we can overcome obstacles to do so? I know that I need to be more believing in these situations. What is your belief when you pray? Do you believe God will answer your prayers and that you will understand those answers? Another way to look at the question, do we really believe, is to ask yourself, can the people with whom I interact see what I believe by the way I act? When I was young, my family was very active in the church, but my parents struggled to hold family home evening or family scripture study. We did have the occasional family prayer, but it was not a regular habit. And yet my brothers and I have all served missions, have all been faithful in our testimonies, and have all served faithfully in various callings throughout our lives. I've often wondered how my parents had nurtured their son's testimonies when they didn't do the basics of family prayer, family scripture study, and family home evening. I know we've been counseled by the prophets to do these things, and I believe they have had a positive influence on my children as Shauna and I have tried to do them in our home. This is why I was puzzled at my parents' success when they didn't do these things. I've come to realize that my parents taught us the gospel by the way they lived. Although my mother's health was limited, uh, limited the calling she held, she never let her health struggle her health struggle get in the way of my father's service. When I was a teenager, my father was the bishop of our ward, but my mother was only able to attend church once or twice a month. Regardless of how she felt, she always supported my dad in his time-consuming callings from scoutmaster to bishop to stake president. There was never any doubt of what she believed. Some examples of my father teaching me that he believed were seen in his day-to-day actions. First, as a home teacher, of an older sister in the ward, he spent many evenings working at her home, breaking up concrete and laying forms so so that she could have a new driveway. Second, as an explorer scout advisor, he organized the selling of eggs and light bulbs and candy to raise money to take the explorers to Southern California. Then again, as a deacon's quorum advisor, he got, got up early every Sunday morning for a few years to help one of his deacons deliver newspapers so this young man could make it to priesthood meeting on time. One final example of seeing my father's beliefs through his actions comes from my niece, Amberly and her then-boyfriend, Jason, when they were dating and came to visit my father in the month before his surgery. Since Amberly was attending Ricks College, now known as BYU-Idaho, in Rexburg, she would often go to Logan on the weekends to visit her grandparents and had seen my father's health deteriorate. On this particular visit, she brought brought her boyfriend, who is now her husband, being the boyfriend, Jason slept on the couch and witnessed my father restlessly wandering about the house all night trying to find a comfortable chair where he could sleep. This restless night preceded a Sunday morning when my father was scheduled to teach a gospel doctrine class in his ward. As Amberley and Jason watched my father walk across the church parking lot, they wondered if he would make it because each step required such great effort and concentration. Here's the rest of the story in Amberley's own words. Quote, when it came time for his gospel doctrine lesson, he taught Alma chapter five. I knew he was dying. He had been dying for several years. And as he sat listening to one of my favorite people in the world talk about being prepared to meet God, I was overwhelmed by the Spirit and my love for my grandpa. Personal preparation is a lifelong effort, and my grandpa was a living example of that preparation. He ended his powerful lesson by saying, I hope that when I leave this life and see God, I can say as the Apostle Paul did, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. I knew what a fight he had made just to get into the building. And then he stood for 50 minutes to teach the lesson. He had fought a good fight, finished his course, and kept the faith that very day. My perspective on preparation and enduring to the end was forever changed, by the faithful example of my grandpa that day, close quote. On that day, my niece and her husband saw my father's testimony and saw what he believed by the faithful way in which he magnified his calling. I'm currently serving in a bishopric in a young single adult ward in South Provo. A few weeks ago in Elder's Quorum, we were discussing Sister Bonnie Oscarson's recent general conference talk titled, Do I Believe? A member of the quorum made the following observation. He said, He said, If your words don't match your actions, then you don't really believe. Are your words consistent with your actions? Does your behavior testify what you really believe? Do my actions testify to my children what I believe, like my parents' actions testified to me? In April Conference 2013, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland taught us about a father who came to the Savior pleading for help with his son. In Mark chapter 9, the father described a son who was possessed of a dumb spirit and was continually doing harm to himself. The family was at the end of the rope. To the father's pleading, the Savior responds in verses 23 and 24, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. The significance of this story for me is the way the father responded to his unbelief. He had a belief in some teaching of the Savior and was seeking help with his unbelief. The father was likely asking himself if he really believed his son could be healed. But rather than turning away from the gospel, he pled for help with his unbelief. All of us here have a belief in some principle of the gospel or have had a spiritual experience at some point Upon which our testimony rests. Do we respond as this Father did by seeking help with our unbelief? Or do we, quote, discard something we know to be true because of something we do not yet understand, close quote? So, how should we respond to trials, doubts, or questions when they arise, as they certainly will? How do we respond when we are faced with questions like, do I really believe in the resurrection? Or do I really believe that people can change? Or do I really believe that God will answer my prayers? Where do we turn for answers to questions like these? Do we follow the example of this father and Elder Holland's story by remembering what we do believe and turning to the Savior to seek help with our unbelief? On the other hand, do we forget what we believe and turn to Facebook or other social media for answers to resolve our unbelief? Laman and Lamuel took the Facebook approach because they didn't believe God would answer their prayers and then murmured when understanding didn't come. Nephi turned to God, believing he would receive an answer and understanding came. I conclude where I started by sharing an experience that happened to me several weeks after my father passed away. Sitting in an elders quorum lesson, I was asked to read Doctrine and Covenants section 138 verses 28 through 30, which states, and I wondered at the words of Peter, wherein he said that the Son of God preached unto the spirits in prison, who, were sometime, who sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, and how it was possible for him to preach to those spirits and perform the necessary labor among them in so short a time. And as I wondered, my eyes were open and my understanding quickened, and I perceived that the Lord went not in person among the wicked and the disobedient, who had rejected the truth, to teach them. But behold, from among the righteous, he organized his forces and appointed messengers clothed with power and authority and commissioned them to go forth and carry the light of the gospel to them that were in darkness, even to all the spirits of men. And thus was the gospel preached to the dead. As I read these verses in that Elder's Quorum lesson, the Spirit powerfully testified to me that my father was one of those missionaries. Sharing, sharing the gospel in the spirit world. Do I believe in the resurrection and that I will see my father again? Yes. I followed my father's counsel, held on to what I believe, and the answer did come. When you are faced with this question of whether you really believe some principle of the gospel, I encourage you to hold fast to the things that you know are true because the answers to the rest will come to you in time. And while you're waiting for those answers to come, live the gospel in a way that allows those around you to know what you really believe. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Come Follow Me podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches Compilations on Love and Marriage, Overcoming Adversity, By Study and By Faith, the Prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.